Bedouin Bethson tried to get his boots off. After a night in the mines, it was amazing what you found in your boots, some of it alive. When the boots were off, not without a struggle, he took the harness off Daisy the pit pony and watched her sniff the clean air and canter into the little field near the entrance to the mine. It did your heart good to see her. There were times when Bedouin would have liked to do the same thing. His mother had told him, you can't change your stars, meaning, presumably, this is your life and you have to live it. Now, as he stepped inside his living quarters, he wondered if Tack might let him try again. He loved Blethyn, his wife of many years, and his children were doing just fine at the school in Lanka. But today he was troubled. The Grags had called, and were quite polite this time, although neither he nor Blethyn really cared for politics. How could they mean anything when you spent your life sweating down in the mines? His pony was now free, but he was at the end of his tether. He just wanted to provide for his family as best he could. What was a dwarf to do? Bedouin wanted his children to do better than him, and it looked as though they would. His father had been annoyed about this. Bedouin was sorry that the old boy was dead, but the world kept turning and the turtle moved. New things were being done in new ways, and it wasn't that the Grags were holding hard to yesterday. They hadn't even got as far as this century. Blethyn had cooked a good rat supper and was upset when she saw his face and said, "'Those damn Grags again! Why don't you tell them to put their nonsense where the light shines too much?' Humans would have said, "'Put it where the sun don't shine.' Blethyn didn't usually swear, so that surprised him, and she continued, "'They had a point once. They said that we were being swallowed up by the humans and the trolls, and you know it's true, except that it's the wrong kind of truth.' The kids have got human friends, and one or two trolls as well, and nobody notices. Nobody thinks about it. Everyone is just people. He looked at her face and said, But we're diminished, less important. But Blethyn was emphatic and said, You silly old dwarf, don't you think that trolls consider themselves diminished too? People mingle, and mingling is good. You are a dwarf, with big dwarf hobnail boots and everything else it takes to be a dwarf. And remember, it wasn't so long ago that dwarfs were very scarce outside of Uberwald. You must know your history. Nobody can take that away, and who knows? Maybe some trolls are saying right now, Oh dear, my little pebbles is being influenced by the dwarfs. It's a sin. The turtle moves for everybody all the time, and those grags schism so often that they consider everyone is a schism out there on their own. Look it up. I've cooked you a lovely rat, nice and tender, so why not eat it up and get out into the sunshine? I know it isn't dwarfish, but it's good for getting your clothes dried. When he laughed, she smiled and said, All that's wrong in the world is that it's spilling over us as if we are stones in a stream, and it'll leave us eventually. Remember your old grandad telling you about going to fight the trolls in Coombe Valley, yes? And then you told your son how you went back to Coombe Valley and found the whole damn business was a misunderstanding? And because of this, our Bryn Mawr won't even have to fight unless someone is extremely stupid. Say no to the Grags. Really, they're bogeymen. I've spoken to all the women round here, and they say exactly the same thing. You're a dwarf. You won't stop being a dwarf until you die. And you could be a clever dwarf, or you could be a stupid dwarf, like the ones who knocked down Clack's towers. Bedua very much enjoyed the rat, which had been nicely seasoned and, as a wise husband does, he thought about things. Two days later, coming back from Black Glass, where he had gone to buy a load of candles, 
Bedouer found two dark dwarfs setting fire to the base of a clax tower. All he had on him were his tools, and it was amazing how useful a simple miner's tools could be. A number of claxmen and goblins joined him hastily in putting out the fire, and they had to stop Bedouer from using his heavy boots to show his disdain for those who resort to arson. He told them, "'My brother's daughter, our Berwin, she works on the clax down in Querm. All this stuff you don't notice until it's on your doorstep. And now I think I've woken up.' Bedouer didn't kill the Delvers. He just, as it were, disabled them. But when he left hurriedly to go home, he noticed that the goblins were busy. From the point of view of people working in an undefended clax tower in the wilderness, the world was seen as black and white, and for these delvers it went black. Railway fever, already red-hot, was becoming incandescent, at least across the Stowe Plains. Would-be investors clamoured for a stake in the Ankh-Morpork and Stowe Plains hygienic railway. There had been some discussion about the word hygienic, and Moist had lost. Hygienic, everyone else thought, gave the project a certain tone, a sort of je ne sais quoi. Lady King said this herself, and who was going to argue with the Duchess? There were swamps to drain, bridges to reinforce, and so theodolites twinkled in the sunshine. But even with Vetinari's support and Harry's millions, it was a slow business. Every piece of track had to be laid with care and tested before anything could be run along it, let alone a train. Moist had expected that Harry would want to get things done fast at any cost, with little thought of safety all round. Oh, yes, he shouted a bit when the surveyors took up too much time, but the grumble remained a grumble. The same picture kept coming back into Moist's mind. Harry King already had the money, lots of it, but the railways were going to be his legacy. No more the King of the Midden. A Lord of the Smoke was better any day, and so while he screamed that he was being sent to the poorhouse, he nevertheless signed the paperwork promptly. To Effie, now definitely a lady, although in the eyes of her spouse she had always been the Duchess, a pet name he reserved for just her, her husband, the railway entrepreneur, at last had a job that his wife liked to talk about. And Effie didn't just like to talk about it, she got involved with it, and increasingly often was to be found in Harry's office. As it happened, it was Effie who came up with the idea of the moving gangs. And so trail after trail of wagons were working their way through the countryside, in which working men and surveyors could sleep and take their meals anywhere the railway wanted them to go, rather than wasting time going home at night. The track-laying was now pressing hard at Moist's heels as he dealt with the multiplicity of landowners along the route. And that was a painfully slow business too. Every one of them exercised by the internal conundrum. If you held out for too much, then there might just be somebody reasonably close by who would welcome the train for a pittance, if he was stupid enough. But then, of course, he might be clever, and he would get his perishable produce to market before you could. And there you would be, with all the dust and all the noise and all the smoke, and none of the money. In the interests of keeping things moving as quickly as possible, the patrician had allowed Moist to requisition one of the city's few golem horses. The horses were noted for their indefatigable galloping, and also for turning your pelvis into jelly if you didn't pad up extremely well. But even with all the multiple layers, Moist was just about rattling when he got back to the city after weeks of negotiations. 
exhausted and in defiance of custom and practice, health and safety, but, on the other hand, with all the glory of the gods of style, to the dismay of the palace guards he rode the golem horse all the way up the steps to the door of the oblong office. There he was pleased to see Drumnot, who deftly opened the door and stepped backwards so quickly that Moist, by ducking, managed to trot neatly to within a foot of Lord Vetinari's desk. Unruffled, the patrician lowered his coffee mug and said, "'Mr. Lipvig, it is customary to knock before entering my office, even, and especially, when entering on horseback. You may thank the gods that Drumnot had the presence of mind to disable our little alarm system. How many times must I tell you?' "'Every time, sir, I'm sorry to say, because you see, sir,' said Moist, "'if I'm to be of any use to you, I have to be Moist von Lipvig, sir. "'And that means, I'm afraid, sir, "'that I have to find the edge of the envelope "'and put my stamp on it, sir, "'otherwise life wouldn't be worth dying for.' "'Moist could see Drumnot wincing "'at the concept of anyone stamping on any stationery whatsoever, "'and continued,' It's in my blood, and frankly, sir, I'm fed up with dealing with old codgers who think they can get the better of Moist von Lipvig, and the cunning and the unpleasant, and the stupid and the clever, and the greedy, sometimes all wrapped up in one man. After all this, I think my soul needs a bit of a wash and brush up, sir. Ah, soul, said Lord Vetinari. I didn't think you had one, Mr. Lipvig. Well, I live and learn. He steepled his fingers. Mr. Lipvig, Mr. Simnel's activities have drawn the eyes of the world. Of course, one could not expect that every country, sizable town and great city would not start thinking about the railway. It is a weapon, Mr. Lipvig, a mercantile weapon. You may not know this because you don't live in my world. Young Mr. Simnel came to Ankh-Morpork because this dirty old town, for all its faults, is the very place upon which this world spins. The place where history is changed, where, because of an enlightened and caring government, which is to say me, every man, child, dwarf, troll, werewolf, vampire, and even zombie, and yes, goblin, can call themselves free. Free of any master, save the law, which applies to everybody equally, whatever their species and status in life. Civis anc morporcianus sum. There was a thump as Lord Vetinari banged his fist on the table. Anc morpork, Mr. Lipvig, is not to be outdone. Now, I know you have been spending a lot of your time these days in making sure that the first fully commercial and grown-up train will indeed have a railway upon which it can run, and when it does it will be the wonder of the world. But all things move on and it is for us to keep our city in the forefront of that movement. No doubt you, Mr. Lipvig, Sir Harry and Mr. Simnel are already thinking ahead. May I suggest that a daily railway service to and from Querm could only set the seal on the usefulness of the railways. While a more efficient way to get to Uberwald is eminently desirable, alas, I fear it must wait. I am naturally being badgered by all the other governments to bring the railway to them, but Querm is our neighbour and an important trading partner, and, he lowered his voice, 
Perhaps we could get our fresh seafood before it walks to Ankh-Morpork on its own. Agreed. You may leave the final details of the negotiations for the line to Stolat to Drumnot, Vetinari continued. He has my permission to call upon the services of one of the dark clerks. The talents of Mr. Smith would be eminently suitable for sorting out any recalcitrant landowners, I think. Moist noticed that Drumnot's eyes had an unusual gleam in them, although the little secretary said nothing. You may go, Mr. Lipvig, and may I counsel you that riding a golem horse in here again will be a very dangerous errand, and may result in you having kittens. His lordship smiled nastily and continued. Cedric is always waiting. Twinkle, twinkle. The feared kitten torture was actually one dreamed up by Moist, and Vetinari had been impressed. In the dungeons of the palace there was a large iron maiden, seldom used. In these modern times, the kitten torture regime was the punishment that would cause the miscreant to pause before doing anything that would place them in the dungeon again. The mechanism and the kittens were presided over by Cedric, not clever, but grateful for the pay packet every month, and he was very fond of kittens, with which the streets of Ankh-Morpork were overflowing. The kittens would be placed in the Iron Maiden in large numbers, along with the miscreant, who could just about sit. At the bottom was a little hatch, large enough to push through a sizable saucer of milk. Every time a kitten was in distress, and made its distress noticeable, Cedric would open up the maiden and give the victim a whack with his cudgel, the amount of cudgelling being contingent on the state of upset of said kitten. There were some idiots who thought this laughable, but it worked. And, after a certain amount of cudgelling, visitors were said to be amazed at the general atmosphere of happiness inside the Iron Maiden, where the purring was so loud it resonated throughout the dungeon. Leading the golem horse from the office, Moist thought, Twinkle, twinkle. Oh, gods, it's catching. Mustram Ridcully, Arch-Chancellor of Unseen University, was held up on his walk across the university's great hall by Barnstable, one of the Bledlows. The man touched the brim of his bowler hat in traditional salute, coughed politely and said, uh, Mr. Arch-Chancellor, sir, there's a uh, person who wants to see you, and he won't take no for an answer. A very sorry-looking cove, sir. Looks like he never had a decent meal in his life, sir. And personally, sir, I reckon he's just after a handout. Bit of an undesirable, sir, and he's wearing a kind of a dress. Shall I show him the door, sir? The Arch-Chancellor thought for a moment and said, This man, does he smell like a badger? Oh, yes, sir, you got it in one. Redcully smiled. Mr. Barnstable, the old man to whom you refer is a master of every martial art ever conceived. In fact, he conceived most of them himself, and is the only known master of déjà vu, a discipline where the hands move in time as well as in space, the exponent twisting space behind his own back whilst doing so. He can throw a punch into the air, and it'll follow you home and smack you in the face when you open your own front door. He is known as Lutzay a name that strikes fear in those who don't know how to pronounce it, let alone spell it. My advice is to smile at him and, with great care, deliver him to my office. 
Lutzay looked carefully at the range of brandies on the arch-chancellor's heaving, creaking drinks trolley and sat back. Ridcully, his pipe smoking like the funnel of iron girder, said, "'How nice to see you, my old friend. "'It's all about the locomotion, yes?' "'Of course, Mustrum. "'Is there anything else to talk about? "'The procrastinators are grinding, "'and everybody in Oidong is fearful of the Gingunga Gap. "'The darkness at the end of the world "'before the new world takes its place, hmm? "'Although, personally, I think it's a jolly good idea, "'what with this one being all battered about "'and unkempt and uncared for.' The only problem I have yet to solve is how to get from the dying world into the new world. That is a bit of a puzzle. But even the abbot is disturbed about the arrival of steam engines when it isn't steam engine time. Ridcully poked his pipe with a pipe cleaner and said, Yes, that is a conundrum. Surely the steam engine cannot happen before it is steam engine time. If you saw a pig, you would, I think, say to yourself, well, here's a pig, so it must be time for pigs. You wouldn't question its right to be there, would you? Certainly not, said Lutzay. In any case, pork gives me the wind something dreadful. What we know is that the universe is a never-ending story that happily writes itself continuously. The trouble with my brethren in Oidong is that they are fixated on the belief that the universe can be totally understood in every particular jot and tittle. Ridcully burst out laughing. Oh, my word! You know, my wonderful associate, Mr. Ponder Stibbons, appears to have fallen into the same misapprehension. It seems that even the very wise have neglected to take notice of one rather important goddess, Peppina, the lady with the apple of discord. She knows that the universe... While it requires rules and stability, also needs just a tincture of chaos. The unexpected, the surprising. Otherwise, it would be a mechanism, a wonderful mechanism ticking away the centuries, but with nothing different happening. And so we may assume that the loss of balance will be allowed this time, and the beneficent lady will decree that this mechanism might yield wonderful things given a chance. For my part, I would like to give it a chance, said Lutze. Serendipity is no stranger to me. I know the monks have been carefully shepherding the world, but I rather think they don't realise that the sheep sometimes have better ideas. Uncertainty is always uncertain. But the difficulty with people who rely on systems is that they begin to believe that nearly everything is in some way a system, and therefore, sooner or later, they become bureaucrats. And so, my friend... I think we say, hail Pipina, and the occasional discord. I'm sure the rest of the circle will be of the same mind to judge by their activities. After all, it's as clear as the nose on your face. Here is a steam engine, a go. It is steam engine time. Hurrah, said Ridcully. I'll drink to that. Why, thank you. I'll have a tincture of brandy with my tea to keep out the cold, if you don't mind said Lutzay. Moist sat at his desk, his mind churning over how best to introduce the matter of Quirm to Sir Harry. He blankly registered a substantial gentleman in front of him, saying, Mr. Lepvig, I have a proposition to... Moist laughed. Sir, 
Anybody who has a proposition for me these days will get a maximum of five minutes, one of which has already passed. What is it? I'm not just anybody, Mr. Lipvig, said the man, drawing himself up to his full height, which was in fact slightly less than his full girth. I'm a chef. Perhaps you've heard of me, Old Jolson. I understand from certain sources. All's mastery of artery-clogging cuisine had made him a number of friends in interesting places. Trading sources for sources had turned out to be very good business practice. I understand from certain sources that any day now your wonderful locomotives will be going to and from Stolat. I wonder, have you thought about what the people on board will eat? I'd like to bid for the franchise to sell food on the trains and possibly in the waiting rooms as well. Small snacks and more substantial servings for the long-distance passenger. There's nothing like a pot of my slumpy to lift the spirits of a weary traveller. Or primal soup, very warming that. I've been experimenting with serving it in cups with little lids on, because there are things in that soup that, to be honest, you wouldn't want to spill on yourself. Moist caught the essential words like a trout catching a newborn mayfly. Food on the trains, waiting rooms, yes, places where people would want to spend their money. Once again he remembered that the railway was not just about the rails or the steam. And as Jolson handed over a slightly lard-stained calling card, Moist let his mind fill with ancillary possibilities. Yes, you would definitely need a place to stay while you were waiting for your train, somewhere dry and warm, with something to drink, and even, heaven forfend, a sausage and a bun that actually had seen a pig. And yes, since Dick had said he'd be quite happy for a locomotive to travel at night, then at the destination there might be railway hotels, as swish as the railway carriages, and sprightly, because people would be coming and going at all times of the day or night. It would seem as if the whole world were on the move. Restless himself, he went out into the compound and crossed to the great shed. Having thought that young Simnel was happily living every dream he had ever had, he was surprised to come across the engineer sitting beside the throbbing iron girder, alone, and there was no other word for it, glum. Moist automatically stepped into his position as the oil that greased the wheels of progress and said, "'Something wrong, Dick?' As if beset by unseen demons, Simnel said somberly, "'Well, it's like this, Mr. Lipvig. I were invited along to Guild of Cunning Artificers last week to see Mr. Pony, and you know what? He told me I should get apprentice to somebody. Me! The lads are coming on fine and should be my apprentices.' but it turns out that I am not a master, and so I have to be indentured for four years to a real master, and then I might just about make a journeyman after a little while. But I told them, I never had indentures, never had a master, because do you know for why? I haven't been an apprentice, because there were no one to teach me all the stuff I know. I had to work it out for myself. And then I read about those old guys in Ephebe, who once built a little steam engine which worked, and then exploded all over them, although nobody got hurt, and any road, they were saved because their steam engine were a kind of boat, and they all ended up in the water with soggy togas. And then I thought to myself, well, those old guys must have known a trick or two, and so I got another book about them from the library in Stolat. And you know what, Mr Lipvig, all those old boys with their togas and sandals, they also invented the sign and the cosine, not to mention your tangent, all that mathematics which I love. And then there's your quadratics. Can't get anywhere without quadratics, can you? 
And any road, they looked like a bunch of old guys who you'd think would do nought more than lie about arguing about philosophy. Then it turns out that all along they knew just about everything about, well, everything, and just wrote it all down. Can you believe it? They had it in their hands. They could have built a proper steam engine and steam bolts that didn't explode. That's academics for you. All that knowing, and they went back to discussing beauty and truth and numbers, and missed the fact that they discovered something reet important. Me? If I want beauty and truth, I look at Iron Gerda. Dick slapped his fist down on the metal carapace and said, There's beauty, there's truth right there. And they had all that knowing, hiding away. Look at her, my machine, I built her, me. And I'm not even good enough to be an apprentice. He paused for breath and continued. Now, don't get me wrong, Mr Moist. I know it's just words, but you see, it's come home to me that since I've never done me indentures, I can never be a master because there's nobody who knows more about what I'm doing than, well, me. I've looked in old manuals and read old books, and you can't be a master until all the other masters say you are a master. Simnel looked even more haunted, while Moist stood with his mouth metaphorically open and listened to the meticulous Mr Simnel blaming himself for being a genius. He continued, "'The lads, as I call them, could never hope to be masters neither, because they won't have been taught engineering by a master. It's flaming ridiculous!' Moist burst out laughing and put his hands on Dick's greasy forehead, carefully turning the lad's head around to face the length of the compound and the huge, ever-present cues for the train ride, and he said quietly, "'They all know you're a master, and Iron Gerda is your masterpiece. "'What boy would not wish to be you, Mr Simnel, a man-made masterpiece yourself? "'Do you understand?' "'Simnel looked doubtful, possibly still hankering after letters after his name "'and a certificate for his old mother to hang on her wall. "'Yes, but with all due respect, the people aren't authorities on the taming of steam. "'I mean, no offence like, but what do they know?' Moist snapped and said, Dick, in some respects, down there, somewhere, is the soul of the world, and they know everything. You'll have heard of Leonard of Querm. There are some masters who make themselves, and you have. You've made yourself an engineer, and everybody knows it. Simnel brightened and said, I don't intend on starting me own guild, if that's what you're thinking. But if some young lad comes to see me and wants to learn the way of the sliding rule, then I'll do him right. I'll make him an apprentice the old-fashioned way, and his hands will never be clean again. And I'll give him indentures until they're coming out of his flaming teeth, all writ down on vellum, if I can find any. That's how it should go, and he'll work for me until I reckon he's done enough to be a journeyman. That's how you do it. That's how you make your trade. When I saw you first, Mr Litvig, I reckoned you were all mouth and no trousers. And I've watched you, running around hither and yon, and being the grease for the engine of the railway. You ain't so bad, Mr Lipvig, ain't so bad at all, but you'd look better with a flatter cap. Iron Gerda let out a sudden hiss of steam, and the two men, laughing, turned to look at her. There was something new about the engine. Hang on, Moist thought. Her shape has changed, hasn't it? She looks bigger. I know she's the prototype, and Simnel is forever tweaking things, but somehow I don't think I ever see the same engine twice. She's always bigger. Better, sleeker. As Moist was pondering the question, he became aware of Simnel beside him shifting from foot to foot. At last, Dick said hesitantly, Mr. Litvig, you know that girl with the long blonde hair and pretty smile who sometimes comes into the compound? Who is she? She acts as if she owns the place. 
That, said Moist, is Emily, Harry King's favourite niece, not married yet. Oh, said Simnel, the other day she brought me out tea and a bun. Moist looked at the worried face of Dick Simnel, who was suddenly in a place where the sliding rule couldn't go. No, this was a different kind of rule, and so he said, Would you care to take a walk with her, Dick? Simnel blushed, if a blush could actually be seen under all the grease. I, I, I really would, but she's all smart and dandy as a daisy, and I'm... Stop right there, said Moist. If you're going to say that you're just a bloke in greasy dungarees, I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that you own a very big slice of all the revenue the railway's ever going to make. So don't go around saying, Oh dear me, I'm too poor to even think about making advances to a nice young lady, because you're the best catch that any young lady in Ankh-Morpork could ever find. And I imagine that even Harry, in the circumstances, wouldn't throw you down the stairs as he did with the swains who were the suitors of his daughters. If you'd like to go walking out with Emily, I'd say go to it, and I'm sure her uncle and parents will be overjoyed. To himself, Moist thought, in fact, Harry would love it because it would keep the money in the family. I know Harry King, oh yes. What's more, he added, she's a lawyer in the making, understands the legalities of running a business. You should get on like a house on fire. In the voice of a man encountering new territory, Dick said carefully, "'Thank you for the information and advice, Mr. Litvig. "'Maybe one day, when I've got myself clean, "'I might get myself the courage to knock on her door. "'Well, don't wait too long, Dick. "'There's more to life than the sliding rule.'